Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett, Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Mauritania, and we are joined by Intisar Fakir, Senior Fellow and Director of the North Africa and Sahel Program at the Middle East Institute. Nicole, do you want to give us a snapshot of U.S. policy towards Mauritania? Sure thing. One of the U.S. government's first moves was ensuring Mauritania was seated at the U.N., Morocco had refused to recognize the country and blocked its attempts to secure a U.N. membership. It required a deal to let both Mongolia, a Chinese satellite state, and Mauritania, aligned with the West, in at the same time. President Kennedy really got along with the country's first leader, Mokhtar Uldada. He charmed the pants off him, according to one former ambassador. In fact, the meeting at the White House went on for two hours, prompting JFK's domestic political advisor to ask, quote, How many votes are there in Mauritania? As an Arab and French-speaking country straddling North Africa and West Africa, Mauritania often had junior status in these various regional bodies and international groupings. Perhaps because of this, former diplomats in the 1970s said the Mauritanians would often divulge what Arab or African leaders were thinking and saying in these gatherings. Of course, that didn't mean that the Mauritanians aligned with the United States on hot-button issues such as Israel, Cuba, Vietnam, or white-ruled Rhodesia or South Africa. The biggest bilateral issue during this early period was Western Sahara. Mauritania had occupied one-third of the territory and Morocco the other two-thirds. In response, the Polisario rebel group would cross into Mauritania and lob mortar rounds into Nouakchott, sometimes hitting the U.S. Embassy, which bordered the presidential compound. In 1979, Mauritania withdrew its claims on Western Sahara. One former ambassador said the U.S. interest in Mauritania was, quote, to prevent worse things from happening. The United States provided assistance to deal with severe drought and desertification, as well as an increase in agricultural productivity and strengthening of public health institutions. There was a sizable Peace Corps contingent as well. Bilateral relations, though, took a nosedive in 1989 when there was a serious outbreak of communal violence between black Mauritanians and white Moors, also known as Bidan populations. There were reprisal killings in Mauritania and in Senegal, and some 40,000 to 50,000 black Mauritanians were expelled. USAID closed its mission in response. The George H.W. Bush administration also resented that Mauritania didn't support Washington during the Gulf War. Diplomats harped on the country's democratic deficiencies and the vestiges of slavery in parts of the country. Since 9-11, the United States has largely regarded Mauritania as an important CT partner. It is seen as having more competent security forces, having prevented attacks in their countries for about a decade now, while the rest of the Sahel is overwhelmed by extremism. Last year, it hosted AFRICOM's annual flintlock counterterrorism exercise. Finally, there has been some cautious optimism about the country's new president, Mohamed Ould Ghazani, who is a beneficiary of the country's first peaceful and democratic transfer of power in 2019. He has surprised observers by pursuing an anti-corruption campaign, which has landed his predecessor and former ally in house arrest. 
President Trump sent a presidential delegation to attend Lil Guzani's inauguration, a rare occurrence during the Trump administration. So, Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? I have two. Well, one is, I think, a success, and the other one is something that we should talk about as we go through the rest of the episode. So on the success, and you alluded to this, Nicole, uh, Mauritania often takes positions that are not consistent with perhaps where the Arab League is or where the West of West Africa is and has at different points in history recognized Israel. There's a question, I think, again, whether under the auspices of the Abraham Accords, Mauritania will do that once more. The sort of question mark that we should talk about is in 2005, there was a coup in Mauritania and then a presidential election, which resulted in a new civilian leader uh, named Uld Sheikh Abdullahi. And the Bush administration really leaned in. They saw this as an incredible opportunity for Mauritania, and there was a lot of investment and attention. And unfortunately, that government lasted, you know, a little more than a year before it was overthrown. And as we as we talk about the things that are are working so far in the Guazani administration, we should reflect on what went wrong. And I, I don't know if I can give you a full diagnosis, but sometimes we grab onto a, a what seems as a success and maybe that blinds us to some of the weaknesses. So something I, I know that our guests can help us think through as we go further on. But uh, into our what should the Biden administration's strategy towards Mauritania be? I think if the Biden administration decides to focus attention on Mauritania, it will realistically be limited because Mauritania is just not one of the Sahel country hotspots. But I think this should be really about finding a balance between counterterrorism and between a push or, you know, rather more support for social justice and social equity and social empowerment. And these are really the key challenges that Mauritania grapples with. The support could be government to government, government to civil society, and there is, you know, a big civil society component that is working with the government on addressing this. You referred to Wild Ghazwani's uh, sort of reform kind of future-minded agenda. I think there, you know, there is a lot to sort of applaud in what he has been doing in terms of, you know, pushing social support programs for the poor, which encompasses the Haratin community, especially this is the former enslaved population who constitute the poorest and most destitute parts of the of the population, and many of whom are still living in perpetual servitude. And then there is, of course, the Afro-Mauritanian community, which, Nicole, you referred to, you know, some of the painful history that had happened between two of the three main um, groups in Mauritania. In terms of... Uh, you know, we, we talked about Mauritania's CT role. It's been crucial. It's been really, it, it is really important to continue supporting that. It's been a multi-pronged approach, professionalizing the army, which the former president had also done. And he sort of dedicated a lot of his career to creating, you know, specialized units, better border patrolling and control, engaging and supporting local communities to improve intelligence gathering. So, there is a lot to support there in terms of their counterterrorism strategy. But there, if there is one area that I would sort of stress and highlight, I would say that this would be education. I visited schools in Nouakchott in early 2020, which are generally very segregated along the ethno-linguistic lines that you explained, Nicole. And I visited almost every type of school, secondary, primary, high schools, and the extent of that need that I saw is really staggering. And, you know, I say this as someone who attended public school in Morocco in the 80s and 90s, so my perspective is not that far off. But the point here is that there is a need in every aspect of education, from infrastructure to material to teachers, 
to support for students getting access to basic things like free meal. And of course, to say nothing about the semi-traditional sort of Mahdra education system, which often replaces regular schools. And in these places, children go to learn the basics of religion and literacy, except in the process, there is so much racism that is imbued in people that really provides the, the basis for some of the social stratification and exclusion that we see. So Mauritania could use a lot of support on this. The U.S. has tried to do quite a bit of work on this. We saw an increase in aid in 2019, primarily focused on education. I think that's a really good sign, and I think a lot more support can go that way. And the good news is that there is a lot of eagerness um, in Mauritania right now to build a much stronger relationship with the U.S. So, Nicole, how do we get the balance right? How do we do some of the things that Desire is talking about? Um, in terms of addressing you know, some of these social inequities? Well, I think this is a great case study of how we can aim to do more than just stop bad things from happening, right? Which has sort of been the historical approach. Um, I think it's, it's true, as Intisar says, I think we need to be realistic about what the focus will be on Mauritania within the Biden administration. But there's some really clear opportunity here. Um, like Intisar is saying, when you have a country where we have some cautious optimism about the leadership, where we have what we know is a growing CT threat in the region, and where we have eagerness for development programs all at the same time, that's like the best kind of early warning light that could possibly go off. So I think capturing this moment, which means being cognizant of the CT stress, but also being really aware that this is a moment where we can come in and work with the government, work with civil society to build on their priorities, which in turn support our priorities of greater stabilization. Being able to capitalize on that moment is really important. And ultimately, the way you do that in the U.S. government is to ensure that the interagency have equal voices at the table. And that can be tough when it comes to the Sahel in particular, right, because you often will have an outside voice for the CT side of the house. And I think increasingly there's a lot of smart people in the administration who are trying to pull together the relationship between stability and terrorism, right? And so I think this is a perfect place where having USAID on the development front, having DFC on the financing front, having obviously the CT community in terms of assessment and warnings, and also the human rights folks, given systemic racism, something that our country obviously also has deep experience with, coming together to have one strategy now, as opposed to when they're forced to come together X many years from now in the wake of a major crisis. This is our opportunity to actually do what we say about building resilience early on. And Sar, do you have one big idea, a crazy idea, any idea you've ever thought of sort of at two o'clock in the morning to put on the table around how, you know, if there were no restrictions at all, we might do something different? So two thoughts. I think a big sort of, if, if the sky is the limit, I think a, a really big overarching social truth and reconciliation process. You know, this would be extremely painful and difficult and fraught. But at some point, Mauritania really needs to do this. It's a process that hasn't happened in any society that experienced slavery on this scale. So there's not a lot of precedent for it. But I think some sort of reckoning really needs to happen. You know, there, there's been some kind of small experiences with this in terms of the expulsions that you mentioned and the violence. 
but nothing quite as sweeping or comprehensive as what I'm sort of imagining. So that's on the local kind of domestic dynamics. The other thing that I think about, you know, at 2 a.m. when I'm thinking about Mauritania is uh, in terms of sort of geopolitics. And another sort of big idea here to consider is that to what extent is Chinese influence going to grow in Mauritania? Could it grow significantly, given that Mauritania is of relatively low diplomatic priority, like we've been talking about for the U.S. and the West? You know, China could leverage its growing foothold there to project power not only onto West Africa and the Sahel, but maybe also into the Atlantic. Right now, China is not super popular in Mauritania, but if it decides Mauritania is of huge strategic importance, we can see it pouring a lot more effort into development in Mauritania and investment in Mauritania. I think both of those are really good. I really like the truth and reconciliation idea. And, you know, this is not a big idea, but just engage. Um, I was looking back. The last time a Mauritanian leader was in the White House was Ul Dada, so the first president. And I think Guazani is a great candidate for that. Don't tie it to the Abraham Accords. Don't make the same mistake we made with Sudan. Uh, but he's someone, I think, who is trying to do some positive things and maybe uh, early engagement would, would be beneficial. So last question our favorite question uh, around culture. I traveled to uh, Mauritania maybe a decade ago and went to the city of Chinguetti. Uh, it's a UNESCO site and I was hoping, and sorry, you could talk about why this is so important. And I'll jump in a little bit too, because I love this city. Sure, I mean, I, I think, you know, Shingiti was an important medieval center of trade and learning among other Saharan cities like Gao, Jenna, Tambaktu in Mali, and even places like the Gadamis in Libya. It's an intersection of desert trade routes that was settled by the sort of old Sanhaja tribes that were part of the Almoravid dynasty that ruled, you know, from sort of southern Spain all the way down to Mali. And just to give a sense of the meaningfulness of, of Shingiti for Mauritania, Mauritania used to be referred to as Bilad Shingiti, which in Arabic means the land of Shingiti. Today it's known for its history and symbolism and, you know, the iconic mosque that is often sort of used as a symbol for Mauritania. And of course, some some of the old manuscripts that it houses. Of course, I think, I mean, at least, you know, somewhat for me as well, there's other significant in those places too. You know, they're, they're significant for their isolation and beauty, these, you know, these ancient remnants of a world that we forgot and that we are just now sort of relearning. And I, what I find really appealing about these places today is the idea that they offer us a chance to explore beyond this view of the desert as kind of a hard line, just sort of a, a kind of a, a separation between North Africa and what we refer to as Sub-Saharan Africa. And places like Shingiti sort of give the opportunity to think about the desert in a different way, as a place of influence, history, and even power, not just sort of a wasteland, um, you know, a notion that was also cemented more with terrorism and terrorist networks dominating these remote areas and, and really keeping them out of reach. So, I mean, to me, Shingiti and even Mauritania more broadly is an excellent symbol for all of this. Okay, I'm not going to top that. I was just going to say I saw the manuscripts and they were incredible. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.